Today I'm beginning a brand new series. Actually, this will be a continuation of what we just did about discipleship evangelism. But let me go back and read a passage of Scripture that is often called the Great Commission. And when I was teaching on discipleship evangelism, I was making this as one of my foundation scriptures. And it says right here in Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, Go ye therefore and teach all nations. I think that there was 10 or more translations that I looked this up in. And it says, Go ye therefore and make disciples. That's exactly what this is talking about. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. And in verse 20 it says, Teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. And what I want to do is to begin to start getting into observing all things. One of the problems in the church is that we have not taught people all things. We have said, let's just get them born again and make sure that they're headed to heaven and then everything else will work out. But Jesus gave us a specific command to observe all things that He had commanded us. And because the church hasn't been making disciples and teaching them to observe all things, then people have been at a deficit when it comes to social, moral issues in our society. And we have let the ungodly take the high ground and feel like that the Christians have no say in these areas. And uh, there are even many Christians that think, you know, we just need to stick to the eternal truths of the Bible. And we don't understand that the Bible teaches us about economics, It teaches us about racial issues between people. It teaches us how to get along in our marriage. It teaches us about health issues. It has all kinds of financial information in it. Jesus taught more on finances than He probably did anything else and used finances as an example. And we should have the Word of God giving us instructions in every one of these areas of our life. Let me just give you a little taste. We're going to go into more detail on a bunch of these things. But for instance, the scripture says to owe no man anything except to love one another. Over in the book of Proverbs, it says the borrower is servant to the lender. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, it says one of the blessings of God is that we would lend and we wouldn't borrow. And on and on and on you could go. And then if you take all of the scriptures where it was expressly forbidden to charge interest on loans to people who were fellow believers. And if you take all of these scriptures, and again, this is not my intent right now, I'm just using this as an example, but if you taught what the Word of God said about finances, it would drastically change people's individual finances. They wouldn't be in hock up to their eyeballs, you know, in debt on all of these things. It would change our nation. We are running up debt. We are borrowing money at a rate that we will never be able to repay. And see, some people think, well, now you're getting into politics. No, politics has invaded these areas that the Word of God has taught us and given us instructions on. And sadly, some people say, well, you just stay with telling people about eternity and heaven and hell and don't mess with our economy today. The Word of God has instructions and this nation was founded on these godly principles and the reason that we are seeing the decay 
and the unraveling of our society today is because we've forsaken these biblical principles because the church hasn't been teaching us to observe all things that Jesus commanded us. You know, a few years back, I taught a series right before the elections in the United States, before the presidential elections, and I taught it on Christian philosophy. And the first part of that series was on, you know, making Jesus Lord, understanding how important the Word of God is, how that everything in our life goes according to the way we think. And I taught on these issues and applied them to spiritual uh, relationship, personal relationship between us and God. But then the second half of that teaching, I begin to start doing exactly what I'm going to do right here. And I begin to start making applications about the way we should think about creationism versus evolution, about uh, abortion, about homosexuality. And I used scripture and I taught these things. And you know, it was powerful. And we had some people that were really blessed Many people said, praise God that somebody is standing up and taking a stand and saying what the Word of God has to say. But you know, I also had people that had been partners with me for a long period of time that got upset and wrote in and said, you ought to stick to preaching the Word of God. Now you're getting on these social issues and stuff and they quit their partnership with me. Our response actually dropped. And it was because I began to start talking about social issues. You know, I had a woman in our uh, Bible college that came up to me recently and told me that she was very, very liberal in her viewpoints when she first came to school and that every time I would mention anything about economics, about abortion, about homosexuality, about creationism versus evolution, any of these kind of, you know, moral uh, issues that the secular world is debating today, she would get upset and, and she would just cringe and say, Oh God, get him back on the Bible. And she says, But after being in the school for a year and a half, she says, I've changed. And I've changed my position on nearly all of these issues. And when she said that, I said, I just want to find out. I'm not trying to criticize you, but I just pulled her aside and I started talking to her. I said, How could a committed Christian, a person who loved God, have these viewpoints on things like murdering children and homosexuality and all of these things that the Bible teaches so clearly that it's one way and yet our society has gone the other. How could you claim to be a Christian and still hold these viewpoints that are completely opposite to the Bible? And she says, I love Jesus and I really had committed my life to Him and she said, my heart was changed and I believed if I'd have died, I'd have gone to heaven. But she says, I didn't love the Word. And she said, when I came to this Bible college and when I started hearing the Word and when I fell in love with the Word and start letting the Word dominate me, she said, I couldn't hold those positions. And so from that conversation with her, I've basically come to this conclusion that I believe people can be converts and they could truly be born again and love God and headed to heaven and still hold viewpoints on things that are completely contrary to what God told us. But you can't love the Word of God and be committed to the Word of God and do that. And so what this says to me is that you know what? The reason we have so many Christians today that don't make abortion uh, an important issue 
They don't make financial responsibility an important issue. They think that we can just feed everybody in the wor world and that we can do these things and just give money to people and, and borrow money and go in debt and keep all of these entitlements going. And people who believe that you know, all of this stuff about creationism is just silly and that they just go with the scientists that the world is millions and billions of years old. And the reason people do that is because they have not been taught to observe all things. They haven't been taught the Word of God. They don't know the Word of God. And so I know that this is politically dangerous. But I'm telling you, we need to teach people to observe all of the things that are in this Word, not just the parts that they like, not just a few little things. If your attitudes, if the doctrines that you hold, if your worldview doesn't line up with the Word of God, then you need to change your worldview, not change the Word of God. That's big. That's big, what I'm saying right here. And it's amazing to me how many Christians do not let the Word of God get in the way of what they believe? So before I even get very far into this teaching, I just want to issue a challenge to you. If you truly want to be a disciple and you want to uh, do, observe to do all things that Jesus commanded us, you need to examine the Scripture. Now, I'm absolutely convinced that the things I'm teaching are true. And so, of course, I'm going to be presenting it as thus saith the Lord, this is what the Word says. And I know that this may ruffle your feathers and it may go against things. Uh, and you may feel like, well, I'm trying to force you to change. I am trying to change your opinion because I believe that the Word of God's opinion is superior to any person's opinion today. So I am going to be forceful and I am going to share this. But you know what? I'm not against you. I'm not mad at you. I'm, I think that this would help you and I think it would help our society as a whole if Christians could start being unified and if we could start uh, observing all of the things that are written in this Word instead of being you know, more influenced by the way that we were brought up and by a certain political party and all of these kind of things. We need to go back and let the Word of God begin to dominate our thinking. So I'm just telling you up front that this is going to challenge you and if my past experience ministering on these things is any indication of this, there's going to be a lot of people upset. A lot of people who've enjoyed my ministry up until this time that you're going to be upset when I go to applying the Word of God to everyday things that we are dealing with in our society. But I'm telling you, that's exactly what Jesus told us to do. And ministers should be doing this today. You know, I was just recently visiting with a minister who, I won't mention the topic because I'll get into this later, but he, he was silent on a very controversial issue in our society today. And he says, I want to love these people. I don't want to condemn anybody. I don't want to turn people away. And so I agree with the point that we aren't supposed to condemn people and that we are supposed to be inclusive and love people. But at the same time, I just told him, I said, what about the kids that are growing up in your church? If the church is silent and if we don't speak out and say this is the way that God ordained things to be, this is the moral code that God gave. If we don't make a stand and say this is right and this is wrong, 
well then I can guarantee you that the secular world, they're making a stand and they're absolutely coming against the standards that the Word of God teaches. And they're saying that this is foolishness and this is old and this is outdated and we need to change. And they are attacking all of the values that the Bible teaches. And so the secular world is not passive. They are very aggressive. And if the church doesn't stand up and say what is right and preach the Word of God, well then in the absence of our influence, the young people that are growing up today, they're going to be told these lies. They're going to have this opinion forced on them and they're going to adopt these values that are completely contrary to the Word. I said it's wonderful to be inclusive and to make people feel welcome to come to your church even if they aren't living a holy life that they could come there and get help. But you don't do that by not saying what the truth is. You know, to me, this is like uh, not taking a stand on alcoholism. And somebody says, but that could condemn some alcoholic. I'm not condemning the alcoholic. I'm extending love and mercy and want to help the alcoholic. But alcoholism is bad. It's not good for you. And so I'm taking a stand against alcoholism. And people would sit there and say, well, yes, that's right. But then they won't take a stand against abortion. They won't take a stand against homosexuality. They won't take a stand against all of this long earth type of stuff that totally undermines the Word of God. And they won't take a stand on these things. And in the absence of our stand, well, then the world is is preaching their doctrine. They're preaching their gospel, which is no gospel at all. It's all bad news. And sadly, a lot of Christians are buying into this because there isn't an opposing voice. There isn't anybody else standing up for the truth. So I'm saying all of these things, trying to present these things. I know that they're controversial and I know that many of you are going to take offense because this is not the way you're raised. You weren't educated this way. You've been this way for so long that you just don't want to change. But I'm going to be taking the Word of God. I'm going to take scriptures and show things to you that if you have any desire at all to be a disciple and observe all of the things that are written in this Word, then you need to at the very least give the Word of God a chance and maybe it would change your opinion. Maybe you would become a disciple instead of just a convert. And I know that some of you, your mind is made up and you don't want to think about anything. Man, if you ever get to where the Word of God is already, you know, you've just shelved it and you aren't even going to be thinking about it. That's a dangerous place to be. I would always open my heart up to anything from the Word of God and evaluate all of the things that I hold dear and all of my principles and I'll put it up against the Word of God and I'll be willing to change. Because the Word of God is absolute, final authority in my life. And I believe that this is what Jesus was telling us to do right here, Matthew 28, 20, that we're supposed to teach people to observe all of these things. Not just some of them, all of them. Yes, you could get to heaven without believing in healing, without believing in the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Holy Spirit, without prosperity, without relationship. You could go to heaven and have been married a dozen times and your marriages never work out and you never get along with people. You can go to heaven with all of these problems in your life. But why do you want to do that? Man, the Word of God will transform our life. It will change us. 
and it would give you a quality of life, a joy and a peace, a happiness, a health, a prosperity that most of us long for, but it's not working for us. And I'm telling you the reason is because we aren't going about it God's way. It says over in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God might be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. It says that the Scripture is given to make us perfect in all of these areas. The Word of God isn't only about spiritual things. The Bible is a spiritual book about our relationship with God and these spiritual, eternal values, but it also has instructions on every single thing about how we're supposed to treat our mate, how we're supposed to treat our children, how we're supposed to treat co-workers, how we're supposed to walk in health, how we're supposed to uh, act on finances. It just has something for everything. And because the church hasn't been teaching to observe all of these things and we've just limited it to this narrow scope about eternity and heaven and hell issues, well then our society is just totally losing its moorings. We're moving away from all of the standards that have made this nation great. And the same thing is true all around the world. Societies today, there is a spirit of antichrist that is operative in the world and beginning to become dominant and societies all over the world are moving away from the moral standards that have held society together for millennia. And we're trying all of these new things and I'm telling you, we need to speak out on the Word of God. So the very first thing that I want to talk about, and some of you are going to be shocked with this, but I want to deal with what some of the things that the Bible says about creation because uh, I would say that it has become politically incorrect today to believe in a literal seven-day creation of the world. Six days work and one day rest. It's become politically incorrect and even a huge amount of Christians will not admit that the Bible is accurate in this area. And by not standing up for what the Word of God teaches, it undermines the accuracy and the integrity of the Word. Let me just use one passage of Scripture right here that makes this so crystal clear that I don't know how anybody can claim to be a Bible-believing and you trust what the Word of God says and yet you still believe in this evolutionary thing where it took millions and millions of years for all of this to form. Look at this in Romans chapter 6, verse 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now somebody's thinking, what does that have to do with creation? Well, this says that death is the wage or the payment, the result of sin. Now the Bible very clearly says that sin entered the world through Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3. If you believe in this long earth and long universe concept and that there were millions and millions of years and that life on this planet came from a single cell amoeba that has developed and done all of these kind of things. Well, if you believe in that, there has to be this cycle of death and then the next generation it somehow or another mutated 
and morphed and changed. And you have to believe in all of this cycle of death and regeneration for millions and millions of years prior to the Bible record of when Adam and Eve sinned. But the scripture says that death is the result of sin. Death could not have existed for thousands, millions of years prior to the sin of Adam and Eve because death came as a result of sin. To believe in evolution, you have to believe that it wasn't Adam and Eve's sin that brought death in, that death existed for millions and millions of years prior to the time of Adam and Eve. That totally violates what the Word of God says. And again, I could bring dozens of scriptures to bear, but this is just so obvious to me. I don't know why we need to go much further than this. The wages of sin is death. Death came as a result of sin. If you believe the Bible, then you know what? You cannot believe in a millions and millions of years of death prior to Adam and Eve's sin. That's incompatible with what the Scripture says. Here's another real simple passage. Over in Genesis chapter 1 and in verse 20, and, and he said, Let the waters bring forth abundantly the moving creature that hath life, the fowl that may fly above the earth in the open firmament of heaven. And God created great whales and every creature that moveth, which the waters brought forth abundantly after their kind. Notice, after their kind. And every winged fowl after his kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them and said, Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the waters in the seas, and let fowl multiply in the earth. And the evening and morning were the fifth day. And then on the next day, it says in verse 24, And God said, Let the earth bring forth the living creature after his kind, cattle and creeping thing and beast of the earth after their kind. And it was so. And in verse 25, it says, And God made the beast of the earth after his kind, and cattle after their kind, and everything that creepeth upon the earth after his kind. Did you know that this is like six or seven different times in two or three verses that the scriptures clearly say that God brought forth these animals after their kind and told them to be fruitful and multiply and reproduce after their kind. You know what that means? That means that the species do not change from one species to another. They all stay after their kind. They all stay in their uh, group. You know, you can breed horses and you can make little tiny miniature horses. You can make huge work horses, Clydesdale and uh, Percherons and all of these. But you know what? They're still all horses. You can breed, and I mean men with all of their intellect and on tension instead of by accident. We can do things and manipulate and you can make some changes, but you'll never find a cow becoming a horse. You'll never find a dog becoming an antelope. It just doesn't happen. They stay after their kind. And yet evolution, see, is completely contrary to all of this. The whole basis of evolution is that we start out in just these chemicals. I always want to ask them where they got the chemicals from in the first place. There had to be some kind of a creator. But they just start out that you start with these chemicals, somehow or another lightning strikes that, energy is injected, it turns to a one-cell animal, and then this one-cell, very, um, you know, 
unsophisticated one cell thing begins to start becoming more complicated. You know, this also violates what is called the second law of thermodynamics, and that is that we have an observable thing in uh, the world that we see, and that is that everything goes from order to a state of disorder. Things don't go from disorder to order. You can't observe that in anything. If you put an arrangement of flowers out, and if you, I mean, they could be fake flowers. They don't have to wilt and stuff like that. But you take some kind of an arrangement and you arrange them in perfect order. And you leave them a hundred years and come back, they aren't going to be in exactly the same place. They go from order to disorder. Nothing gets better as time goes on. And yet evolution is all dependent upon a process that is unobservable in our universe today. Going from incredibly uh, simple to incredibly complex. It goes against everything that we have. Nothing gets better with time. It decays over periods of time. That's the way that nature operates. And yet evolution is dependent upon something totally different and it violates these principles. Death came as a result of sin. And everything reproduces after its own kind. I tell you, this is just so powerful. These are powerful truths. You know, what I would like to do is uh, we had Dr. Grady McMurtry on our program uh, two or three years ago, and he was talking about some of these exact same things. This is a man who is a scientist, has all of these degrees, all of the education in the secular things, in geology and biology that I don't have. And here's this man uh, saying these same things from a uh, secular point of view. He's a Christian, but he's using uh, information in the geological record to say some of these same things. So I'd like to cut that interview in and use him to amplify on some of these points. Give us a little bit of introduction. How did you arrive at being a creationist? Have you always believed this? No, I have not. Uh, there are a few Christian scientists who, who have always believed in creation. However, in my case, as in most others, I started off as an evolutionist. I actually grew up uh, in the California Berkeley uh, area uh, on the campus of Cal Berkeley, going to public school there, learning evolution in the public schools because that's all they taught in the 50s, but also would spend my time in the paleontology laboratories at the University of California, Berkeley, learning about dinosaurs, fossils, and evolutionary theory as a child. Mm -hmm. And I learned about them so well that by the time I was eight years old, they already started borrowing me from one classroom to the other in the California public school systems to teach the other children really? about dinosaurs, fossils, and evolutionary theory because I knew more about it than the teachers did. So you've had an interest in this since you were a very young child. Well, I've had an interest in science always. And, of course, because I was only being taught one side of the issue. You know, education requires being taught both sides. Critical mm -hmm. thinking requires being taught both sides. Mm -hmm. What's going on in the public schools now is exactly what was going on in the public schools then. They're teaching only one side. It's indoctrination. It's not education. Propaganda, really. Well, it is a form of propaganda, and I do call it that myself on occasion. Uh, however, I went on to go to high school in Washington, D.C., earned a Bachelor of Science at Tennessee, a Master of Science at State University of New York as an evolutionist. So my science degrees specifically are as an evolutionist, and I believed it, and I taught it and to so others. And so what were those science degrees in? What was the... The Bachelor of Science, Field. well, you have to understand that in, in my case, they're very general science degrees. Mm -hmm. Some people specialize. My speciality is being an expert generalist. 
Well, so, it gives you a broader view than a person that's, that's just it. than just a narrow thing. And, of course, some people would say, well, he only knows about this or he only knows about that, but he doesn't know about this. Well, that's not true. I know about this and I know about that. So in medical terms, it'd be like you're a general practitioner rather than specific. I'm not a specialist in the sense that you would think of medically. But by the same token, I have in-depth knowledge in all areas. Mm-hmm. And I can stay current at all times, both in evolutionary literature as well as in creation literature. But I, I would go on then to teach evolution from the seventh grade to the university level. However, at the age of 27, I was challenged with, was the evolution that I had taught others and so forth true or was it not? I became a Christian and uh, I would go on to get a doctorate, uh, it's called a doctorate of divinity, with a speciality in creation science. I would go on to, uh, just a year and a half ago, get a doctor of letters. So was it this uh, challenge to your evolutionary theory that led you to become a Christian, or were those... Actually, separate? it was the other way. Um, and I think it's typical that uh, first, at the age of 27, I was challenged simply, was Jesus telling the truth or not? That's an ancient argument. You know that as well as I do. It's mm-hmm. been around for 2,000 years. Uh, the fact of the matter is, though, that it's a simple question. And uh, as you might gather, I've got some academic scholastic skills, so I simply attacked that question from a purely analytical, scholastical position. Uh, Because I've been around Christians all my life, but at 27 I simply said for myself, enough's enough. Either Jesus is telling the truth, He is the Son of God, or He's not, period. Mm -hmm. And so for six months I did a self-guided study. Although, of course, I look back on it and say, well, the Holy Spirit was guiding me. But at the time I was not that aware of it, okay? Mm -hmm. So for me it was a self-guided study. I didn't have anybody sharing across a coffee table. I didn't have anybody saying, here, read this or read that. I simply took a look at the Bible. I took a look at the histories that are outside of the Bible and so forth. And after six months of diligent study, came to the conclusion that Jesus was telling the truth. And awesome. so in a room entirely by myself, the Holy Spirit being present, but no other person, mm-hmm. I decided to become a Christian. That's a good choice. And I you know, so it's, it's, I think it's a really good point that you're making too, that uh, Christianity isn't just a total leap of faith in the dark. If you really analyze the facts, it leads to Jesus being who He said He was. So what did this do to your evolutionary model when you became a Christian? Well, that's just it. Um, first of all, I knew so little about Christianity. I went to an associate pastor at a church near where we lived and explained the story of what had happened in a longer way. And he said, so your decision is firm. And I said, if you knew me, you wouldn't ask the question. And he said, okay, and then he simply showed me about making it public and being baptized, and and I was. But, of course, that left me with a huge, huge problem. It simply made me a saved evolutionist. Mm -hmm. Now I'm smart enough to know I've got a problem. So what I did was I spent 16 additional months of simply evaluating the question, had God used evolution to create what we see around us? Was everything I had learned okay and taught others was okay? Or was what I had learned and taught others wrong, and that in fact God had really had created 6,000 years ago, as it says in the Bible. And at the end of 16 months, I came to the realization that there's absolutely no science whatsoever to support evolution. All good science proves creation. Well, now that statement, I agree with you 100%, but our viewers are sitting here thinking, wait a minute, this is an absolutely proven fact. All of the well, evolution stuff. Evol- evolution, first of all, there's no such theory, no such thing as the theory of evolution. Yeah. Literally, if you had a million evolutionists in a room, you'd have a million different theories. They would all agree it's true, and no two would agree what it really happened. 
And the fact of the matter is, by the time it got through the room, the first guy would change his mind. Mm -hmm. So first of all, you have to realize that, that there is no such thing as the theory of evolution. There are many. Secondly, they've never been proven. That, that's an absurdity. As a matter of fact, most evolutionists would have to agree, if you push them hard enough, it's not really been proven. What it is, it's a philosophical construct. That evolution is not accepted scientifically, it's accepted philosophically. But it is spoken often that it's a proven fact that They're, this has happened. Because they have the floor, they've got the pulpit, so yeah. to speak. They have the bully pulpit. And what they do is they simply, because this is what they want to believe, they then promote yeah. it to others because they want to have company. Well, I think that this is a point that really needs to be emphasized as we start into all of this, that we are countering the theory or the theories of evolution, but it is not proven fact. Matter of fact, the facts prove opposite. Absolutely. And after 16 months, I came to the conclusion there's not one law of science, there's not one natural process, and only some of the physical evidence that could be used to support evolution, whereas every natural law, every natural process, and all the physical evidence supports creation. Well, now, Grady, I'm really interested that when you became a Christian, you immediately saw a conflict here. So it would this be accurate to say that if you truly embrace evolution, is it an anti-God concept? or uh, it, Why did you pure, all of a sudden see this conflict? Well, see, pure, pure evolution is absolutely atheistic. Now, there are those people who would call themselves deists. There are those that are theistic evolutionists and so forth. There's different gradations. Mm-hmm. However, if you truly believe 100% evolution, you cannot be a Christian, period, because true evolution is atheistic. Hodges at Princeton, back over 100 years ago, said that evolution is atheism. That was his simple blanket statement after reading Darwin and analyzing things. And that's exactly correct, because true, pure evolution says there is no God, period, that everything must be naturalistic, mechanistic. There can be no outside creator, designer, God, no outside intelligence of any kind whatsoever. So those people who are Christians and believe that evolution has occurred in the past over millions and billions of years, we, we lump them as theistic evolutionists, that God used evolution. But this is not an acceptable position. Mm-hmm. If one simply looks at it, one realizes the conflict. But the fact of the matter is that if you believe in an old earth, old universe, for any reason. Now, there are different theories of why this right. was. You're familiar with gap theory, mm-hmm. day-age theory, yeah. framework theory, and so forth. I've got friends that teach that gap theory, and we've discussed it, and yet they love God, and yet they still believe in that. Yes, but it's a theory that only came into existence in 1813 I agree. I agree. You know, by Chalmers. Mm-hmm. It is absolutely wrong, and you can prove it being yep. wrong. I believe so. And that's just it. My point is that all you need is six things to prove that any older view is inconsistent with Christianity. Because if you believe in any old earth view, you're destroying the cross. Mm-hmm. You see, if you believe in any old earth view whatsoever, you're saying God's not omnipotent, He's not omniscient, He's a liar, He doesn't always have a witness, He can't save a remnant, and death occurs before sin. If that's true, take the book of Romans and tear it out of the Bible. That's well, a very simple point. In my, in my view, I'm uh, probably more simplistic than what you are. You sound like you approach things from a super logical way. But from my view, the Bible says it happened this way. Evolutionists says it happens another way. And you immediately bring the whole of Scripture, not just Rome. I mean, everything from Genesis on is in question. And that undercuts a person's faith. There's no way for you to be strong in faith if you don't believe the Bible is infallible and inspired by God. Well, see, without creation, without the doctrine of creation, there is no Christianity. Because you find this throughout the entire Scripture. If you start not just with Genesis... 
But if you take a look at, for instance, John chapter 5 or Revelation 14, 6 and 7, it is creation, which is the foundation of Christianity. Without mm -hmm. it, there's no Christianity. God made them, male and female. They didn't evolve. Also, you know, it says that every, every species was supposed to bring forth after his kind. And evolution is based on all of these things evolving from simple to complex. And it just totally goes against the whole concept that Scripture teaches. So well, I, I think it's a, totally incompatible. If evolution is true, you have common ancestry. If the Bible is correct about creation, then you have created kinds. And mm -hmm. actually, that's what we find consistently throughout with science. And concerning the age of the earth, there are over 270 what are called geochronometers. Now, geo, like geology, geography, mm -hmm. means earth, matter, universe. Chronometer, of course, is a timepiece. It's a Timex, it's a Rolex. So a geochronometer is an earth time clock or a universe time clock. There are over 270 of them that we have today going towards 300. Because we actually are finding about one new one per month these days that show that it's all young, perfectly mm -hmm. consistent with 6,000, and proving that the millions and billions of years did not happen. But think about it for just a moment as to why an old earth view destroys the power of the cross. Because if you do believe in millions and billions of years, the only reason to do that would be to believe that life and death have been going on for millions and billions of years. If that's true, death is common, and human sin didn't cause it. And so the death of one man on a cross is meaningless. I've never thought of it from that perspective, but that's very good. Whereas if you understand creation correctly, that God started everything perfect, put Adam and Eve there, gave them the right to mess things up, they did. Mm -hmm. And because of human sin, death came into the universe. Then and only then can you understand how the death of one sinless man on the cross can atone for the sins of the world. And so mm -hmm. if you believe in an old earth, you're destroying the power of the cross, period. Yeah. You may not realize it. And I'm not saying that people do it intentionally. Yeah. Most of them do it without thinking. Most of them do it because they've never been presented with the information that they would then think it through. You know, I heard a statement by David Barton that I forget the exact figure, but I think it was 73 to 80 percent of all Christian young people lose their faith in the first year of college and primarily because of teaching on evolution that just makes the Word of God look like it is totally inaccurate and it doesn't apply to us today. And that is not true. I mentioned Romans chapter 6 verse 23 that the wages of sin is death. And evolution uh, has to have death for millions of years before Adam and Eve came along. And that violates what the Scripture says. There was death. And, you know, all of the mineral deposits, all of the fossil records that they talk about, all of the oil that was quote-unquote deposited over millions of years and all of this stuff, it had to depend upon death of plant and animal life. And yet the Bible says that sin is what produced death. There wasn't death prior to Adam and Eve's sin. So that's a big deal. And we showed Dr. Grady McMurtry. And let me just go back and read this again. This needs to be repeated. But in Genesis uh, chapter 1, in verse 21, it says, God created great whales and every living creature that moveth, which the waters brought forth abundantly after their kind. Notice that. And every winged fowl after his kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let fowl multiply in the earth. And the evening and the morning were the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth the living creature after his kind, cattle and creeping thing, 
and beast of the earth after his kind. And it was so. And God made the beast of the earth after his kind and cattle after their kind and everything that creepeth upon the earth after his kind. And God saw that it was good. So that is six times in about three or four verses that it specifically emphasizes that every animal is after his kind. What this is referring to is that, you know, dogs and cats are different. Horses are different from giraffe. Animals don't become other animals. You can breed within a species, but you can't cross species. And that's what the Bible record is saying. Evolution is absolutely dependent upon changing from one species to another, from an ape to a man. That is completely against what the Word of God says. Evolution cannot stand up to the uh, examination of the Word of God. There's a friend of mine, Dr. Carl Ball, and I went to his Creation Evidence Museum in Glen Rose, Texas a couple of years ago, and he was talking about this very thing about the species. So I would like to just refer to him right now. He's got degrees and he's going to present these things from a more intellectual, scientific viewpoint than I am, but it fits perfectly with the scriptures that I've presented. Andrew, when I first got into this work, I was completing my master's in archaeology. And my mentor, Dr. Clifford Wilson, said, if you're going to refer to the Paluxy evidence, you're going to need to go to the river and carry on one original excavation. Well, I intended to be here for one excavation, but the course of my life was changed. When I directed that first excavation along the banks of the Paluxy River, I was an old age creationist. Now the audience needs to know that the Kool-Aid comes in various flavors. There's first outright atheistic evolution. Then there is theistic evolution. Mm -hmm. I'm aware of those two. Then there is the day-age theory. There's the gap theory. Yeah. And then there's the concept that many Christians hold to, that God created, but He used long periods of time to do it. A day is as a thousand years, mm -hmm. a thousand years as a day. Little knowing that when Peter referred to that, he was not talking about creation. That's true. He was talking about judgment. Mm -hmm. But I held to old age creation. At that point, I believed that the geologic column, the record in the rocks, showed life forms that were basic, life forms that were more sophisticated, and then ultimately life forms that were incredibly complicated. Little did I know that the basic life forms are more complicated than evolution can ever hope to address. But evolution is built upon this thing that it starts out very simple and comes to the complex. Yes. And simple. yet everything in nature is opposite this. Everything goes from complex to simple. It goes from order to disorder. But literally, uh, evolution has been redefined in order to slip it in under the rug. It's been redefined as change over time. However, what they don't say is that that change has boundaries. So they slip in the concept that, well, a tadpole can ultimately become a monkey that can ultimately become a PhD. Change over time, but that change has limitations. The change never leads with billions of years spent in the laboratory with experimentation. Right. That change never leads to a higher order. It never increases the complexity. 
it might isolate the gene pool to get a superior product temporarily. Change over time is limited. And in the final product, it is always downhill. Yep. Never increasing in complexity. And evolution is dependent upon that very thing, that yes. the species evolved into different species. There is change within a species, but never from one species to the next. And you are right. It is always a lateral change. Mm -hmm. It is never a vertical increase of complexity. In fact, I got a call from a reporter recently. That reporter said, sir, I've been watching you for years, and I want to come interview you. And I said, welcome. I've had over 2,000 interviews on, on this evidence, and mm -hmm. the, uh, most of them are surprised that I was an evolutionist in the past. Yeah, I didn't know that. That kind of strengthens your position because you've been oh, on yes. both sides of this I, I've issue. been on both sides. In fact, I think we should know more about evolution than the evolutionist himself does. The more you know about evolution, you know it is completely scientifically untenable. It's not fact. It is assumed to be true. There are seven assumptions that begin with a universe creating itself out of nothing. Mm -hmm. And it goes from there to inorganic material somehow creating organic material. An absolute assumption, billions of dollars have been spent in the laboratory to try to, to show how that could happen. In fact, uh, I wrote a book, Why Do Men Believe Evolution Against All Odds? And I quote a leading evolutionary scholar who admitted, not only do we not know how inorganic natural chemistry evolved to become organic living chemistry. Not mm -hmm. only do we not know how it happened, we can't imagine how it could have happened. Yep. And he admitted that. That's not a creationist making that statement. Yep. So many in the audience are, are thinking, well, evolution has been proved. Let me just give one statistic. You have in your body over a hundred trillion cells. In every one of those cells, in every one, there are 60 thousand proteins in a hundred different specific configurations. You mix those configurations up and that cell begins to die. It won't function. What are the scientific odds, and this is from the technical literature, what are the scientific odds that those 60,000 proteins, let's just, just give them somehow the ability to assemble themselves. Now that's a miracle, an absolute miracle. But let's assume that those 60,000 proteins somehow just sprang up. What are the odds that they could self-assemble? In the technical literature, it is one chance, one chance, in 10 to the 4,478,296 power. Now let wow. me repeat that. One chance, one chance, in 10 to the 4,478,296 power. And you know, I was a math major, and one of the things that I studied was the law of probability. Yes. And anything to the, what, the 50th power? Well, one chance in 10 to the 50th has is, zero. It is absolutely impossible. It cannot happen. And you're talking about something that is infinitely bigger than that. Infinitely bigger, and the chance infinitely smaller, which really means... It can't happen. ...that the probability, putting it, the shoe on the other side, the probability that every cell in your body was designed by a designer, that every cell was designed by a designer, is 10 to the 4,478,296 power to one. 
I'll tell you what, if I had those odds, I'd buy a lottery ticket. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, people that aren't familiar with math, that is not just four million times. No. Because each time you go up, it's 10 times. It's 10 times. You, each number up is multiplied by 10. It's just, it's astronomical. You know, here's another little layman's definition. And again, I'm going to keep drawing these things back in for Good. those who aren't technically Good. inclined. But if you were to take the entire combined resources of, of people on this earth, billions of people, all of our geniuses, all of our money, combine every laboratory, and then you take all of these proteins that you're talking about in rare form, all of the intellect and collective ability of man couldn't produce a one-celled thing that no. would work. And if it couldn't be done on purpose by people of intelligence, it is absolutely absurd to think that this just randomly happened. Well, let's follow that thought. You're a good thinker. Evolutionists say, okay, well, it, it wouldn't happen quickly, but give it enough time. Yeah. Well, time is not on the side of the evolutionist. That's right. You see, every living cell must have a support mechanism and without that support mechanism, in a matter of minutes, it begins to deteriorate. And in a matter of hours, it's dead. Mm -hmm. So time is not on the side of the evolutionist. Back to that reporter who called me. He said, I've been watching your work for a number of years. I want to know what keeps you going. It must be your faith. And I said, sir, it's not my faith. I said, in this issue of life origins and evolution versus creation or creation versus evolution, the evolutionist has a lot more faith than I have. Mm -hmm. That's true. I have facts to base my conclusions on creation. What keeps me going? Truth keeps me going. I said, I have found the truth that there is evidence for creation and we have evidence supporting creation. And uh, Evolution begins with seven assumptions. Creation begins with one. The one assumption for creation is this. We find such complexity mm -hmm. in the heavens, in the earth, in living systems, especially in the human body and mind. We find such complexity. It demands a creator. There is no right. way naturalism can produce it. You know, on our new property up in Woodland Park, the sanctuary, we're building a trail on it. And my uh, graduating class wanted to give a gift to us. And so one of the gifts that they're giving, they're putting up a marker on this trail. And they've heard me say that this is what I wanted to do. So uh, they are, they're putting this together. I haven't seen it yet, but I've always said that I want a marker on that trail that as people walk around, they'll come up to this stone marker and it says 20 million years ago on this exact spot absolutely nothing happened because God had not created the heavens and the earth yet. <laughs> I think that's great. And this is a reaction, you know, to going to the Grand Canyon all of these places that a hundred million years ago all of this stuff happened. They weren't there. They don't know. Well, people might say, well, you weren't there either. How do you know? Because the Word of God says. And you know, I, I've shared Dr. Grady McMurtry and also Dr. Carl Ball uh, bringing some scientific, more educated 
uh, things to this, but the biblical principles that I've already established, they're true. I'm just using these guys to supplement it. And what I'd like to do today is go back to Dr. Carl Ball. I was at his Creation Evidence Museum in Glen Rose, Texas a few years back, and we taped him. And, you know, the evolutionary model is dependent upon these uh, fossils of things like trilobites. This is a one-celled animal that is incredibly complex, and yet it was supposed to be some of the very beginnings of the evolution that eventually became a man. And yet, um, Dr. Carl Ball has actual uh, fossilized prints of a human footprint with a trilobite in that exact same follow. Uh, fossil that according to the evolutionary column were supposed to be separated by millions, maybe hundreds of millions of years, and yet here's a trilobite in the exact same fossil on the, on the shoe print of a man walking in this fossil record. So I'd like to, for you to hear uh, Dr. Ball's explanation of all of this, so I'm going to go back to that and play that. Well, let me address this. Oh, I'm so glad you're here. We have so much to talk about. Mm. Here along the Paluxy River, this is the Cretaceous limestone. This limestone layer is adjacent to uh, the Austin layer called the Austin Chalk Cretaceous Rock. They're, they're actually blended as one. This layer extends, it was first described near Austin, Texas. It extends through Glenrose. Now it's sedimentary. Sedimentary rock is laid down by water. Geologists now recognize it's laid down very quickly. They used to think it was laid down over long periods of time and accumulated. Now they know because of polystrate fossils. Poly means many, straight means layers. Polystrate fossils running through these layers, that this was laid down rapidly. Okay, from Austin, this layer runs through Glenrose. It runs 1,600 miles to the eastern seaboard, picks up again at the White Cliffs of Dover. It runs throughout Europe. It runs throughout Asia. It runs throughout Russia, back to Europe. It runs throughout Israel. It runs throughout Saudi Arabia. Wow. It runs south throughout Africa, now back to Texas. It runs north from here throughout Canada. It runs south throughout Mexico and throughout South America. This one layer, it runs west, is broken up by the Rockies, picks up again, runs to the western seaboard, is picked up again in Australia. This layer we're working in is a worldwide sedimentary layer that requires a worldwide flood. Now, one of the most important things we have at the Creation Evidence Museum is the wall of truth, a 20-foot wall where we have the actual rock layers that we brought in from throughout the United States, starting with the granite into the Cambrian that, according to evolution, is 550 million years old. They can't prove it's that old, but it has what they call primitive life forms in it, so they assign it 550 million years. Then it goes up through the coal that's supposed to be 395 million years old, goes up through the Permian that's supposed to be 230 million, up through this Cretaceous layer, all the way to the top. Andrew, saturated throughout this, these systems of layers have been found man-made artifacts. Like 60 to 100, 500 million years before man existed? What about a human <laughs> sandal print with stitching around the side with an Alrathia gingai trilobite? Now, don't let that blow you. That, that's a particular <laughs> three-lobed sea bug. <laughs> with one pressed into the heel and one pressed into the toe, a, a man-made 
human sandal print. And if were, it shows stitching, that would be a uh, developed man. Oh, sophisticated. Yes. And this has the wear on the heel. You know, when we walk, place the outside and then we mm -hmm. transfer the weight. This has the wear on the outside at the bottom of the geologic column. I can guarantee you there's people who have been partners with me forever and you are going to write in and say, you're just fine when you teach on the Bible, but why would you do this when science has proven that creationism is uh, a false thing, it's all evolution, and you are going to be taking it as it's a proven fact. And again, what Carl is saying right here disproves evolution, and people will write this off. When we did research for this, we looked up a lot of things, and one of the criticisms by creationists... By creationists were saying that these footprints were carved. And that was one of my questions. And when I saw the little interview that Michael, one of our TV guys, did with you, you made that point that there oh, yes. were false That's footprints carved, but nobody gave you a chance to explain that. And they didn't uh, explain that you had had a verification of the compression of the footprint. But right. there are people who will to not believe in creationism because that makes them accountable to God. That makes the word correct, our modern society incorrect, and they aren't willing to do that. They're willfully ignorant. Now, now there are many, I'd say there are tens of thousands, probably more, who do believe this evidence. But when uh, an evolutionist, a committed evolutionist, uh, calls and, and, and we say, and he says, so you have a new footprint? Yeah. Well, everybody knows their card. He hangs up. He refuses. And there are even creationists who refuse to look at the evidence because they think they're all carved. Let's look at some real evidence. That's great. Let's do it. This is the Willett print. You can see where O.W. Willett in the mid-1950s actually cut through the rock to get this out. This was on the park ledge and uh, he came to fish, fish weren't biting, and a flash flood had recently ripped the ledge off. So he saw this trail of human footprints and he cut this out. The most interesting thing about it is this individual stepped on a little pterodactyl track. That's the heel of the pterodactyl. This is the pliable forefoot. Oh yeah. So we have two tracks. We have a pterodactyl track and then we have a human track. Now, I had mentioned that there were some footprints carved. Mm -hmm. They were carved because originals had been found actually in the bed of the river. So uh, how do you tell the difference between a carved track and a genuine track? We now have the spiral CAT scan technology and the spiral CAT scan shows compression not only under the hallux heel area of the pterodactyl but compression even under this pliable forefoot and then the compression of the human track over it. Not only do we have this original track with the evidence of it being cut out, the hole is still in place on the park ledge, precisely where this came from. And I mentioned my buddy Robert Summers, the world oh, famous yeah. artist who lives here at Glen Rose. Mm -hmm. Bob grew up at Glen Rose. He has become, well, in fact, let's just meet Bob. Robert All right. Summers. Glad to have you so, come on, thank Bob. You. It's my, my privilege. And uh, he has sculpted the John Wayne at John Wayne International Airport, trail drive downtown Dallas, the Byron Nelson, the Tom Landry, to mention just wow. a few. 
It's awesome. And some of these tracks are probably mine. I mean, <laughs> literally, <laughs> I've been here a long time. But Dr. Ball was saying that you saw these Absolutely. before they were excavated in the rock layers. About 57, 58 years ago. Are you that old? <laughs> I was mm -hmm. a young man of 11 or 12. We used to go out to the Plexi River to picnic mm -hmm. in the area that is now the state park. It was it belonged to a friend of mine at that time. But uh, oh, you know, it was it was common for us to go out there and hey, look, here's another dinosaur track, and then we'd step over some of these human prints, and they said, look here. I said, so what? You can see that at a beach. You know, let's go over and look at these dinosaur tracks. <laughs> not realizing the significance. You didn't realize that to have <laughs> human footprints and dinosaur tracks right together basically what killed evolution. Well, I didn't even consider that, you know. It wasn't even, I said, hey, dinosaurs and men. And you do verify that as oh, a young man, you saw this series of footprints? I probably saw that track. Yes. I, I, I can't verify that, but there were like a left, right, left, right. About six tracks. And, yeah, there were probably five or six tracks, yeah. yeah. Wow. And that could very well be one of them. And particularly now that we have the spiral CAT scan technology you, you to know, read through the rock. I had, I had some friends here, and one of them was known to carve tracks. But you can tell it in a heartbeat when you see a carved track. And besides that, today's technology, the spiral CAT scan, as you mentioned, will show the compression underneath these. I, didn't, I don't need that to tell if it's carved or not. Mm -hmm. But it kind of fits in with my work. Yes, you know, because he's a sculptor and that's natural. Well, not only do we have this, but this also is an original footprint. Now, this is in rock that, according to evolutionary theory, is assigned an age 110 million years. Of course, those ages are simply assigned. All of these deposits were laid down in the worldwide flood mm -hmm. of Noah's day. This is from the Permian Basin, the looters print, and. Uh, Permian Basin's out in uh, West Texas. Out in West Texas. And the Permian rock, according to evolutionary theory, is about 220 million years old. Here's a big footprint. Uh, it's human in nature. When I first saw it, and the individual who cut it out of the series cut very close to the ledge. Mm -hmm. When I first saw it, I thought, well, that can't be genuine. But we ran it through spiral CAT scan technology. It is genuine. Of course, it has the great toe, sensitive second toe, third, fourth, little toe. It's from a giant. It's 17 inches in length. Well, now Shaquille O'Neal's foot's not much smaller than that. <laughs> That's correct. <laughs> we have one of his tennis shoes, and uh, his feet are, were about 16 inches. And so that's only an inch and a half longer than Shaquille O'Neal's footprint. That's right. And wow. Max Palmer was 8 feet 2 inches tall. He had a relatively short foot for a giant. It was 15 and a half inches. So it's within the realm. So this is that uh, sandal print that you were this speaking of. This is probably one of the world's most valuable artifacts. This is the sandal print with a stitching around the side, curvature of the mm -hmm. front of the sandal, about an inch and a quarter from the tip of this very hard slate, stitching around the side here, the wear on the heel. It's a right sandal print. Wait this a is minute, look at what's in there. Oh yes. What? That can't be in there. Well, that's an Elrathia <laughs> gingai trilobite. That's the overlay material. And another one crushed here. And uh, He explained this, is, this earlier. <laughs> yes, a trilobite is a three-lobed sea bug. Yes, yes. Now, this is at, at what the, date? Well, this is at the bottom of the geologic column that, according <laughs> to evolutionary theory, is assigned an age 500 50 million years. <laughs> 
because of the trilobites. Well, actually, remember uh, Dr. Ernst Mayer stated that if you could find mm -hmm. a horse fossil or, or something very complicated, 500 million year old rock blow evolution completely and strongly favor adherence to a creator. Well, there this is. is 550 more complicated than a, yes. than the mane of a horse. Uh, and again, I'm not sure that the cameras can capture this, but I can just verify looking at it that you can actually see the exact sandal print. You can see where the stitching is along the edge and all of these things, whether it shows up on camera or not, it's definitely and verifiable. You can really get a close up of a that. A trilobite. Yes. I've learned a new word. <laughs> You know, I'd like to go back to Dr. Grady McMurtry, and he was talking about Mount St. Helens. And he's got pictures of things. And according to the evolutionary model, if somebody wasn't there to know what happened at Mount St. Helens, you could look at this and the evolutionist would come along and say, this is hundreds of millions of years worth of sediment uh, deposits right here. And yet we know from history, we were alive during this time, that it took just a matter of days or weeks maximum for all of this uh, sediment to pile up. And uh, anyway, this will really impress you. There's some uh, pictures here and things. And Dr. Grady McMurtry, I did an interview with him a couple of years ago about this, and I think this will really bless you. One thing I want you to address is they say that it took... Uh, at least millions or whatever years to erode for the Colorado River to erode the Grand Canyon. How do you answer this? What's the answer? Well, first of all, I, I think that we were looking at the sedimentary rock layers. And remember, sedimentary rock is just layers of dried out mud. Mm -hmm. Now, I would like to go to Mount St. Helens, 1980, and then show how this shows us how the Grand Canyon was formed quickly. Okay. Now, this is a 75-foot-high cliff, and this is a fully adult young lady down here. That's not a child. She's a young lady. <laughs> but you see here three zones. There's one here, one here, one there. Mm -hmm. These zones are each approximately 25-foot deep. Now, if you were an evolutionist and you believe that material did come into existence at the rate of uh, one inch every 1,000 to 10,000 years by the erosion of prior rock material, uh, you would say this represents one million years of Earth history. The fact is that we have eyewitness documentation, photographic evidence to prove everything in the photograph, with the exception of the young lady, came into existence in less than three days. The bottom layer, 25 foot, occurred in nine hours on May the 18th of 1980. During the initial nine hour first eruption of Mount St. Helens in 1980, laid down 25 foot of ash wow. in nine hours. The second set of what are called highly striated, or many, many layers here, mm -hmm. uh, that was only in five hours. Wow. And the top layer formed in less than 24. There's three different events during the time of, of the eruptions in 1980 to 1982. But these three layers came into existence in less than 24-hour days. This yet, shows you that geological features come into existence in nature rapidly. But if an evolutionist was to walk on this a thousand years from now, in the future, they would look at they this. They might and, well say this is a million years of Earth and history. And yet we have... We have explanation and proof that it we was We can prove it. It's very, very rapid. And 75 foot of material. Nine hours, five hours, that's only 14. That's less than 24. So in less than 38 hours total, you have 75 foot of material. That's awesome. And again, I assume that the evolutionists don't uh, show this. They don't like to. <laughs> they don't talk about this <laughs> They don't much. talk about it. They hide it. Now, this is a photograph of the Grand Canyon of northern Arizona. It's something that you were very interested in and something very near and dear to all of us creation scientists. Now, here you see these beautiful colored layers. 
Now, the Grand Canyon at its deepest point is 1.2 miles deep. It is from an eighth of a mile to 18 miles wide. It's 277 miles long. It's a big empty hole in the ground. Mm -hmm. However, you'll notice in this photograph, you can see barely right there is a little piece of the Colorado River. Uh -huh. And right there, you can see a little piece of the Colorado River. Now, of course, evolutionists want you to believe that all these layers came about slowly and gradually over 500 million supposed years of human history, or time, Earth time. And they want you to believe that that river cut that canyon slowly and gradually. Now, there's a couple of problems with that, of course. Um, first of all, you take a look at the size of the river, you realize it couldn't do it. You know, just think about it for a second. But there's something else that's very, very important about it as well. Now I'm going to go back to Mount St. Helens for a moment to make an illustration. This is a canyon at Mount St. Helens. This is a uh, creation science colleague of mine. This canyon is 125 foot deep. It was cut in one day. Wow. Now, and how's that about water? Actually, mud flow, but that's a form of water flow. But uh -huh. you know, it's a mud flow. That's when that uh, lake that was there, I guess. No, this was subsequent to that. Uh, okay. No, no, this is not during the initial eruption. Okay, this so was actually later. Flow. This was a subsequent eruption. But what I want to do is I want to go up on top to the edge there, and then I'm going to go way over that away. <laughs> okay. Okay. And take a picture. Here in this photograph, that is the same canyon you just saw. Now, first of all, you notice the land here looks quite flat. Now, mm -hmm. I know there's mountains in the area because this is the southwest corner of Washington State. Uh, but you'll notice the land itself in this area looks rather flat, agreed? Mm -hmm. But you see how the canyons drop straight down, correct? Now, I'm going to take the camera from right here and just zoom, tell, just you know, telephoto zoom lens into the same canyon right here. Okay. Now, you'll notice that in this photograph, you can see the same three layers I was just showing you with the young lady, correct? Uh -huh. And this is the canyon that was dug in one day, 125 foot deep, exposing these layers to make them so easy to see. We saw a canyon here, 140th the size of the Grand Canyon, form in a matter of weeks. So you multiply that times 40, and you could form the Grand Canyon in less than a year. Exactly. And the Grand Canyon was cut in less than a year. Now, let's go over to this canyon over here. It's called Engineer's Canyon. But again, you can see the exposed same layers here in the shadow. But you notice the canyon has two straight sidewalls and a flat bottom. And you see a little bit of water going down the middle there. Mm -hmm. Now, without me even have said anything about the mud flow cutting this particular portion here, you look at that photograph and you know that water didn't cut that canyon. Because if that water had cut that canyon slowly, gradually, you'd have a V-shaped canyon. This is a square-shaped canyon. Now, square-shaped canyons means that they're cut fast. And then you have to ask yourself this question. Is the canyon there because of the water, or is the water there because of the canyon? That's a good question. And it is very obvious. Once the mud flow cut the canyon very rapidly with straight sidewalls and then stopped because it's a very rapid event that stops, then there was a place for the water to go through. Mm -hmm. Take that analogy and go back to the Grand Canyon. Now, this is a satellite photograph taken from 23,000 miles above the surface of northern Arizona. This is a false color photograph, so the colors you see here are not correct. Okay. Now, first of all, the squiggle that you see starting up in the upper right-hand corner going south here, turning, going basically west, and then turning south again here. That's the Colorado River. So the Colorado River comes south off the Colorado Plateau here, 
turns at East Point, the east wall of the Grand Canyon, basically flows west through the canyon, then turns again and goes south here to the Baja. Now, I don't mean to be silly or redundant, but it's important to say this. In order for the water to flow through the canyon, the canyon must get lower and lower. Agreed? Mm -hmm. Water flows downhill. Mm-hmm. However, if you'll notice this rather rusty color here, magenta, whatever you want to call that, I'm yeah. not quite sure your choice, it isn't that color. That's actually green. That's the Kaibab National Forest. That's a scrub forest that grows on a ridge that goes north and south here through northern Arizona. And so the trees show you the ridge. Now this is a scrub forest as the, as the water comes in off the Pacific, comes over the coastal range and the Sierras, it rings out a lot of moisture. It comes down over the high valley or over the high uh, desert of the areas near Las Vegas. But when it hits this ridge, it has to bounce up. And when it does, it drops just enough water to keep a scrub forest growing here. Mm -hmm. So let's think. Now, wait a minute. The water has to, to flow through here, and the bottom must get lower and lower. But this is a ridge. Well, does that mean that water flows downhill, then uphill, then downhill? I don't think so. So you're saying that if this river would have cut this whole thing, what, how did it ever get over this ridge? Right. So let's think about this and take the Bible seriously. Let's think about another explanation. Now, I had mentioned to you previously about Psalm 104 verses 5 through 9, being a chronology of the flood of Noah. Mm -hmm. It says, verse 5 and 6, God sent a complete total flood of the entire earth. The water is seen above the mountains. But as I explained, these mountains are 5,000 feet high or less, capable of being covered with one mile of water. Those mountains are eroded away and deposited as wet mud layers, which are the sedimentary rock layers that we see on the surface of the earth today. Mm -hmm. And that during that time of Noah's flood, this is just a big sandbar. It's a mud bank laid down by the flood of Noah. So, now the Bible says, again in Psalm 104, verse 7, that after the earth is covered with water, after the mountains that existed prior to the flood are eroded, they're deposited as wet mud layers, and this is just a, a sandbar mud bank laid down. It says, then the waters go away. But in verse 8 it says, then the mountains rose up, and the valleys sank down to the place you established for them. In verse 9, he promises he'll never again flood the entire earth with water. Mm -hmm. Think with me. This is northern Arizona. Now, Colorado is up over there. After the waters go away, the Colorado Rockies are rising rapidly out of the ground. Now, these are wet mud layers. And they're rising out of the ground very rapidly. That's verse 8. Now, that means that the, the water in those wet mud layers is going to come out the ends of the layers. Now if they go to the east and go towards the Gulf of Mexico, no problem. But if those are on the west side and the water is coming out and flowing towards the Pacific, but here it comes up against an earthen dam. This is a ridge laid down by the flood of Noah. Mm -hmm. Well what's going to happen? This is an earthen dam so that water is going to pool up behind this earthen dam. And the reason that the Grand Canyon is 1.2 miles deep when you look down into it is because you're standing on top of a ridge. People tend to think for some strange reason that when they see the Grand Canyon, because it's so big, they can't really see it all, you know, from one place. They tend to think that it's a canyon that's been cut into a plateau this way. But it's not. It's a square hole through a ridge. And what happens is the water comes in at 2,800 feet of elevation flows through this ridge and comes back out having dropped a thousand feet in the process. 
So this is one of the books that we sell by Dr. Walter Brown in the beginning, Great Encyclopedia of Creation Science Materials. But this map comes from that book. Here's the Grand Canyon that exists today. Here's a ridge going north and south here. Mm-hmm. These are two great lakes that formed up behind that earthen dam as water is draining from the Colorado Rockies, so as those layers are being elevated. At one time, these waters covered 30,000 square miles. And then probably triggered by an earthquake. Now, it could have been pressure, but it's much more likely triggered by an earthquake because there's still earthquakes in the air. This earthen dam was breached, and those waters flowed through there and cut that canyon in a matter of months. Same thing is true of the gorge of the Yellowstone uh, in Yellowstone National Mm -hmm. Park. You can see rapid cutting. The same thing is true of Niagara Falls. We can see and prove that the whole gorge of the Niagara was cut in only a matter of about 4,000, 5,000 years. Here we see, again, rapid erosion where these two great lakes punch through that ridge. Now, the basic scenario is the two great lakes, earthen dam, it's breached. But you can see this. You'll know that I'm not making this up. Now, this is a satellite photograph taken during the winter. The white that you see here is snow. Now, in this particular case, north is at the bottom. I know that's upside down, but north Mm -hmm. is at the bottom. And so the white, the snow on the ridge, helps you to outline where the ridge itself is between these two red lines. Now, the Colorado River is flowing south here along the ridge. But you can see that it actually turns and goes through the ridge here and then turns there and goes to the Baja down that way. Mm And you can see the Grand Canyon is simply the result of a whole lot of water and a little bit of time, yeah. and not the result of a little bit of water and a whole lot of time. Well, you know, out here just about 30 miles from where we are right now at Guthy, Colorado, it's just a wide place in the road. They had a flood in 1999, yep. which I was here, and I remember on the uh, news them showing a road that was washed out, and I mean there was uh, rock, granite rock, and in one hour's time or so, this flood came through and cut a hole that was 20 feet or more deep. Yeah, it was deeper than that. And it literally just gorged us. So are stuff. you familiar with what I'm talking about? Yes. And the process is called cavitation. But the faster water moves, the bigger the things it can move. Okay. But it was amazing that you could cut a gorge like that in just a very short period of time with a very small amount of water, really. If you're talking about something like what you're describing with these two great lakes, it would be um, totally understandable how this happens. That's just massive amounts of water moving very fast yep. all at one time can do a tremendous amount of work. Well, this is excellent information. And again, I just want to encourage all of our viewers that what we've done is just scratch the surface. You know, this DVD that I watched on the Waters Cleave, there was a lot more information and things on there than what we were able to discuss this week. And then... Sure. I looked on his website, and I bet you there's at least 50 different subjects. I'm not sure oh, yes. how many. Oh, yes. And, and, and we have books for all ages, and we have general books and specific topics and, as well. And we need this verification, and I'm just unable to give you the scientific things. I can teach you from the Word of God, and that's convincing for me. But uh, we need to be able to arm ourselves with this information so that we can refute the claims of people who are saying that this is a proven fact that evolution is true and that all of these things are true and it is not a proven fact. So I want to thank you, Grady, for doing this. Uh, It's really been good. And I believe that we have a God who loves us and created this and He thought it all through. It is intelligent design, creationism.